So today is the final chapter of our disciple series. And today we're going to be looking at what is the third mark of a disciple of Jesus. I'm excited about that. But first, I want to take you guys back in time a little bit um, to 1995. Anybody? Anybody feeling 1995? All right. So 1995, I was 16 years old. I just received approval from my parents to get my driver's license. And so I have my driver's license in hand. And for me, if you know me at all, you know that I'm not like a big risk taker. It's just not in my DNA. Uh, So like I'm excited about driving, but at the same time, I'm deathly afraid that I'm going to die. So um, I I was very kind of like nervous about it, but still pumped about it that I could hang out with my friends whenever I wanted and whatnot. So uh, I feel like my mom kind of felt the same way too. Like, I think parents, when your kids reach that point in life, like, you're excited that you don't have to drive them everywhere still. Like, you get a little freedom back. But at the same time, you're also scared to death because your babies are in, like, boxes on the road with lots of other people in boxes on the road, and everybody could die. Um, But thankfully, that usually doesn't happen. So my mom's a little, like, timid about this as well. And so she decides that my first trip should be to go and hit up the grocery store for a gallon of milk because she doesn't want to go. That's the only thing that she needs. And so uh, she calls me up and she's like, hey, can you take the car and go get a gallon of milk from the grocery store? And so this is like, for me, this is like my first mission. This is the moment that I've been waiting for. My first time alone in a car going somewhere. And so I I go out and uh, I don't have a car of my own. So I hop in 1986 Toyota Camry. Uh, incredible car. And uh, I get in, shut the door, buckle my seatbelt, make sure my mirrors are good. Like I'm doing all the stuff that you're supposed to do that you do like the first three times you drive and then you don't do anymore. Uh, Like I'm doing all that stuff. And so I I get ready and I back out of the driveway and I start heading down the road and I realize that I've forgotten the most important element of any car trip. I didn't take like my disc man and plug it into the cassette player so that I could listen to the gin blossoms as I'm like heading down the road. And so like I'm driving and I'm like, oh man. So I reach down, I grab my disc man with one hand. I've got one hand on the wheel and I like find the cassette adapter and I put it in and I start like I hit play. And the next thing I know, all of a sudden there's this great big boom. And I turn and look and realize that I've just swiped my neighbor's mailbox with my rear view, like, side mirror over here. And I'm like, ugh. So I stop. I get out. The mailbox, like, kind of does this now. Um, and that the car's okay. But I go into my neighbor and I'm like, I just hit your mailbox. I'm so, so sorry. And since this is, like, my first time, truth be told, like, I'm in tears. And it's just like... It's an incredibly emotional moment for me. And my neighbor like comes out and he's like, it's fine. No big deal. Nothing's wrong. Uh, and so I'm like, okay, I'm like, I've got to keep going here. So I hop back in the car and I'm like, I'm not just going to turn around and go back home. But I go, I grab the milk from the store and I come home and I have to tell my mom everything that has just happened because that's just the kind of kid that I was at, the point, at that point. So uh, but here's the thing about this. I was sent on a mission by my mom to pick up a gallon of milk. And what I figured out that first trip is that there are a lot of distractions to us uh, when we're going and when we're doing something. And sometimes when we're going, we find ourselves uh, messing up and making mistakes. And we have to get back up and keep moving. And 
Jesus is calling us as his disciples to this idea that we are to go, realizing that at times we're going to be distracted and we're going to make mistakes. But the most important thing for us to do is to get back on our feet and move and follow him uh, in obedience. And so if you guys have your Bibles, we're going to look in Matthew chapter 28 um, to one of the most well-known passages in Scripture, uh, the Great Commission of Jesus. So Matthew 28, and we're going to start in verse 16. Jesus, here's how it goes. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Immediately following the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus, risen from the dead, begins to encounter people who followed him in his life. And what happens when he sees people is they're shocked and and they worship and they respond in good ways. But what Jesus does at this point is he says, go, Gather my disciples and bring them up to this mountain. I need to meet with them. And so what we see is this big moment where Jesus is calling his disciples to come to him so that he can tell them something that's incredibly important for them to grab. I'm sorry, I got like a little too excited praising earlier. Um, But something that's incredibly important for them to understand and do. And so we have this huge moment that's leading up to this time where Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Notice in verse 18 that he starts out and he says this. He says, Jesus came and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he's saying that the Father has given me the authority to come before you as my disciples and to declare this, to do this very thing. Authority matters in these cases. In 1863, in the middle of the Civil War, there was a moment where um, our country kind of came together to celebrate the founding of a national cemetery. And this guy's name was Ed Everett. He was a senator, was to give the speech that day. And and Ed stood up and he does what I'm not going to do today. He launches into a speech and it lasts for two whole hours. And so the people are standing out and they're listening to Ed as he's kind of like the keynote speaker to this whole thing. He's going through this thing, and I'm sure that, like, after about 10 minutes, people will begin to fade. Um, But after two hours, he's probably lost everybody at this point. Immediately following Ed's speech, this guy named Abraham Lincoln stands up and gives a two-minute speech. He says this, four score. And seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Abraham Lincoln was giving his famous Gettysburg Address. His speech was kind of an afterthought to this this long speech by this guy named Ed. But Lincoln is able to come and speak as the President of the United States and give great authority and something that we remember I had to memorize when I was in school. You probably did as well. It's become one of the greatest speeches in the history of our country. Lincoln goes on to say, he says, this world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. Abraham Lincoln had no idea 
that over 150 years later that we would still remember the words of a two-minute speech that he stood up to give that was an afterthought for a whole movement. And so why do we remember the words of Lincoln when we don't have, have no clue what Ed said for two hours, but we can remember what Lincoln said for two minutes? The reason is because he had the authority to bring this great message to the people of America. And we remember that. Jesus is standing before his disciples and he's saying, God has given me all authority in heaven and on earth. What I'm about to say to you is vital. It is important. And here's what he says in verse 19. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. You guys have heard that. You see it up on the screen. If we look at this, what we see are two commands. One, go. Two, make disciples. What I want us to understand today is there's really only one command here. These two things are tied together. The only command that we see is make disciples. In the Greek text, uh, we only see one imperative. If you know grammar, like I was an English major, so I studied this stuff for a while. Uh, grammar, like in grammar, we have things called commands or imperatives. Make disciples in the Greek text is a command. It's an imperative. Go is what we know as a participle. It's a verb with an ing form at the end. And so technically what Jesus is saying is as you are going, make disciples. Jesus is tying these two things together. You can't go without making disciples and you can't make disciples without going. They're tied together biblically. When we speak about how a disciple is to go, we're saying that a disciple is out making disciples. These two things can't be separated. And so I want us to look at this idea, firstly, this morning, of going equals making disciples. They are tied together. What does that mean? Going, making disciples, basically means living a life of intention. It means that the things that we do throughout our day matter because we have said, I'm doing this for a specific reason. I don't know what time you guys woke up this morning, but my alarm went off at 5 o'clock in the morning. When my alarm went off at 5 o'clock this morning, the only thing that I could think about was when I was going to crawl back in bed later on tonight, right? Am I right? Like, we wake up in the morning and, like, we're most excited about getting back in bed that night. That is not living with intention. Jesus has called us to be people who live with intention, that we're pushing towards the intention of seeing that we're making disciples in all the things that we're doing. As we are going, we are making disciples. This works out in every area of our life. In your marriage, as you go out on a date and spend time together, you are discipling. With your kids, as you sit down and eat breakfast together, you are discipling. The people who you work with, as you gather together and have conversations at work, you're discipling. The friends that you speak to on the phone, you are discipling. Your neighbor who comes to borrow your lawnmower, you are to be making a disciple. Your parents call you to check up on your family. That's an opportunity to make disciples. Whatever we are doing in life, Jesus has called us that while we're doing it, we need to be making disciples. A guy named Jonathan Dodson, who's a pastor in Austin, Texas, said this, and I just, it's stuck with me ever since I read it. He said, people need to know not only what the gospel is, but what it does. 
two parts to this whole thing. People need to know not only what the gospel is, but what it does. And this is what it comes down to when we say our intention is to live a life where disciples are being made. We need to let people know what the gospel is. And we need to show people what the gospel does. We talk a lot about our circle of responsibility as a church. And when we talk about that, we say that our goal is that every man, woman, and child inside of our circle has multiple opportunities to see, hear, and ultimately respond to the gospel. It's the very same thing. We are to live a life where people can see the gospel. They can see what it does inside of our lives. But at the same time, we're speaking it to them as well. They're hearing the gospel. This is how we make disciples. People see what Jesus does in our hearts and people hear what Jesus has done from our lips. We make disciples by doing both of these things. They go together. You cannot pull them apart um, from each other. So going equals making disciples. Secondly, we go because we're sent. We see the Great Commission. Jesus has said he's sending us out to make disciples of all nations. We are to go and do this. If you look in John chapter 17, um, Jesus has what's called his high priestly prayer. If you haven't read it, I encourage you, go open up John 17. It's an incredible prayer from Jesus to the Father, where you really see the heart of Christ for you, his disciple. Where you see how much he cares for you. And in this prayer in verse 18, Jesus says this. He says, Father, as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus is our model of what it means to be a missionary. He left perfection, time, spending fellowship with the Father to come down and become one of us, struggle with the things we struggle, have the same temptations, but yet not sin and live a perfect life so that he could become an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then as he rose from the grave, that we could gain a victory of new life through him. Christ was the first missionary who left the comfort of the Father to come to a people who were without hope and give them hope. And he's calling us to do the very same thing. Father, as you have sent me, I'm sending them. We are a people who are sent above all else. It doesn't mean that we're not other things. And a lot of times we identify ourselves primarily by those other things. We say, well, I'm a father, I'm a mother, I'm a husband, I'm a wife, I'm a doctor, I'm a teacher. We have all these things in our world that that we attach ourselves to. And we say, these are the defining things about me. But the truth is, before all of that, we are people who are sent on mission. And so, yes, you may be a father. But truth be told, you're someone who is sent as a father, to make disciples. You might be a doctor, but the truth is you're someone who was sent as a doctor to make disciples. You might be a wife, but the truth is you're someone who was sent as a wife to make disciples. In all these contexts, whatever we do, we are to make disciples in all of them. And Jesus is our model of that. So I want us to kind of break this down a little bit this morning with our remaining time. What does it look like for us to be a disciple who goes? And there's really three areas. The first one, disciples go personally. If you look in the book of Acts, there's a couple of really great stories. In Acts chapter 16, that we see in one of them is Acts chapter 16. It looks, uh, starts in verse 14 and 15. 
Um, Paul is out on a missionary journey. He's out sharing the gospel. And it says in verse 14, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Lydia came to believe in Jesus. And the first move that she makes is to go and to tell her household, her family. Households back then weren't just family. But they were also people who were there, friends who were serving, all kinds of different things. She went and told her entire household about that. And scripture says that she was baptized in her whole household as well. She couldn't contain it. It made such an impact on her life that she had to go tell the people she cared about the most. Later on in the book, uh, in the chapter, Acts 16, there's a story about a jailer in Philippi. And Paul and Silas are in prison for preaching the gospel. And all of a sudden, they're, they're sitting in their cells and they're singing praises to God and praying, a lot like what's happening earlier here today. And there's this huge supernatural movement where an earthquake happens. The doors of the prison cells are blown open and the chains fall off the wrists of all the prisoners. This jailer wakes up realizing what has just happened and and, and thinking that all of his prisoners are going to run away. And he immediately falls down and grabs his sword and is about to kill himself. Knowing that if he allows this to happen, he's going to be dead anyways. Paul calls out to him and he says, stop, we're still here. And this jailer comes to Paul and it says, he rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas, brought them out. And he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Powerful testimony. The Bible goes on to tell us that they preached the gospel to him. And it says in verse 33, and he took them the same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once. He and all his family. Another example of a guy who comes to faith in Jesus and realizes he can't keep it in. The most important thing for him to do is to go to the people that he cares about in life the most and allow them to see and understand the hope that he has, which is only found in Jesus Christ. Who are we going to personally? It's an area of our life where, where our family fits in, our, our friends fit in, the people that we work with fit in, our neighbors fit in. We talk a lot about this idea of how our church has a circle of responsibility, this, this radius around our church where we want everybody to be able to see, hear, and respond to the gospel. The truth is, each one of us in our lives has our own circle of responsibility. And there are family, there are friends, there are coworkers, there are neighbors. They're the people who God has placed us intentionally with that we might make disciples. And our mission, as Christ has sent us, is to see that our friends, our family, our neighbors, and our coworkers have multiple opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. A great friend of our church is a, a guy named Neil. And um, Neil runs this thing in our state and in North Carolina that's called the Cypress Project. And it's basically a tool and a conglomeration of churches that come together to say, we want to accept 
We want to take seriously this call to see that every man, woman, and child has multiple opportunities to see and respond to the gospel. Neil took this seriously personally. Um, Prior to living here, he lived in Charlotte, and Neil moved in to a house on a street like most of us live and realized quickly that he's surrounded by people who don't have a relationship with Jesus. Neil had compassion, was burdened, realized that he had a responsibility here. And so uh, he did what he could to start building relationships. He had cookouts, all kinds of things, just to get to know people so that he could eventually speak the gospel into their lives. Over time, he began to see neighbor after neighbor after neighbor come to faith in Christ to the point where eventually on a street, everyone was a believer. At that point, Neil and his wife decided to pick up and move, not because they wanted a better house, not because they wanted to live in a different neighborhood, but because they wanted to have more opportunities to see people that God had called them to come to faith in Jesus Christ. We've got to have that same passion and that same burden for the people in our lives. Realizing that just like Christ came to us, was burdened by our hopeless condition, that we need to be burdened by the people that the Lord has in our lives who don't have a relationship with Christ, that don't have the joy, the love, and the hope that we find in that, not just in this life, but for eternity. We need to be burdened by the fact that if we don't provide them with an opportunity to respond to Jesus, it could mean that they're separated from God eternally. So I want to talk through uh, just a few practical ideas. How do we How do we live as people who make disciples inside of these different contexts? And these are just ideas to kind of get you started. Realizing that the end goal is that you can speak the gospel and live out the gospel in the context of these relationships. Let's start with family. I almost don't even have to say anything because we saw such an incredible picture of the gospel at work in the life of the family this morning in the Burnsides. And it is so encouraging to see parents who love their kids, desire to disciple their kids and see them come to faith in Christ. Parents who love each other or encouraging each other and who are able to come together and have these moments. There's no better picture than that at all. But here's here's a few ideas for you. Number one, have intentional conversations. Most of the conversations that we typically have because we live the kind of lives that wake up in the morning and our goal is to get to the end of the day. So we sit down at the dinner table. How was your day? Good. Anything exciting happen? Nope. Have intentional conversations where you can talk to your family, where you find moments to speak about the love of Jesus and how the gospel speaks into life. Don't ask yes or no questions. Ask things like, Tell me something today that happened that was encouraging. Create intentional moments where you can have conversations with people that God has put you with, where you can bring the gospel into play. Number two, huddle together as a family. I, I, can't, I can't encourage you guys enough in this. If you aren't spending time with your family in the word of God, ultimately we're not doing what Christ has called us to do in discipling those who he's placed us with. Spend time in the Word of God with your family. Encourage each other. Pray together. Do these things so that you can see your family grow together as a family in the Lord. Number three, 
Spend time together. This is simple, but it's something that we take for granted so often. Have intentional time together. Turn your phone off. Turn the TV off. Go do something together where you're just around each other and you're able to live out an expression of the gospel as a family together. What about friends? What do we do with our friends? Number one, hang out. Just spend time together. We have a lot of people that we call friends that we never see. And they're never going to be able to see the gospel in us or hear the gospel from us unless we're spending time with them. Find time to hang out. Go play golf. Go paint. Go do whatever you guys both like to do. Just spend time together so that you're able to be an expression of the love of Jesus. Number two, check in. I'm the worst at this, so I'm just going to go ahead and throw this out. This one's for me. Like, I have friends all over the country, and I'm the worst at, like, calling them people who I say I love more than anything and actually seeing how they're doing. Check in with the people that God has put in your life, not just a Facebook message, not just wishing them happy birthday, but actually call them and say, how are things going? What can, what can I do to pray for you? And be intentional about this stuff. Um, next, if you have people in your life that were your friends before you came to Jesus, a lot of times we have one of two reactions to that. One, uh, growing up, sometimes our parents tell us to distance ourselves away from people who are lost because they don't want us to turn into crazy people. And so, like, one of our reactions is to just, like, drop all of our old friends who don't know Jesus already. And really, truthfully, that's one of the worst things that we can do. Another reaction that we might have in that kind of situation is, like, when we spend time with those people, we just kind of like revert back to who we are because that's who they're used to being with. But it's really important when you're dealing with friends who you've known forever and you're experiencing a life change from the gospel to invite those people into your new life in Christ. Realizing that you've been changed by the gospel, that you have a heart that the same thing happens in their life, invite them into your new life. Don't just discard them and throw them away. Don't turn back into who you were before Jesus. Invite them to be a part of your family, of your missional community. Invite them to church. Allow them to see the things that God is doing in your life. Coworkers, lots of us enjoy our lunchtime because it's like our down moment for the day. But I'm going to throw this one out. Don't eat lunch alone. God's given you... 30 minutes to an hour where you can sit with somebody you work with and be an expression of the gospel into their lives. Don't miss out on that opportunity. Don't eat lunch by yourself. Find people that you can invest in for the kingdom. Number two, bring snacks. My wife does this incredibly well. Like once every week or two, she's baking cupcakes or cookies and she just takes it to work, sets it in the break room, sends out an email. Hey guys, there's stuff there. Go grab it. Um, That's one way that she shows the love of Jesus to the people that she works with. And it sounds, I mean, it's incredibly simple. They're able to see that you care for them. And ultimately, they're going to see that that care comes from Christ. Be a listener. I can't tell you the amount of times that I, distracted by something going on in my life, have one of my neighbors or somebody that I work with come up to me and start telling me, man, I'm struggling here. And my mind is just somewhere else. There's no better opportunity to speak the hope of Christ into a person's life than when they want to speak 
about the difficulty of life to you. Be somebody who listens and find an opportunity to relay the love of Jesus. Neighbors, be people who are front yard people. We do this thing every day where we pull out of our garage, the door opens, we go to work, we come back in, the door opens, we pull in and it shuts. And that's all the people see of us is driving our boxes around on the street. Like, we need to be people who are interacting with the people that God has placed us with. Hang out in your front yard. Do a barbecue in your front yard rather than your backyard. Uh, If Halloween is coming up, like, don't just sit inside your house. Go out into your driveway where you're going to interact with people. Be people who are creating opportunities to invest in the people that God has placed you with. Be that family that throws neighborhood parties. Be the family that has a neighborhood Christmas party, a Super Bowl party, where you invite all your neighbors to come into your house in a non-threatening way to build relationships with them so that they can see how Christ is working in your life and hear it from your lips. Last is a neighborhood organizer. This is for a select few of incredibly serious people. Join your HOA. Like, get to know people that way. Be the guy who wants to build contact information for everybody on your block to pass out. And so you go and meet everybody on your street so that you can start building those relationships. Be somebody in your neighborhood who people think of immediately. Um, Be that neighborhood organizer. So disciples go personally because we're burdened about the people that God has placed us with. Secondly, disciples go locally. One of my favorite passages of scripture is 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says this about the church. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners... Exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And and Peter is saying to the church, realizing that ultimately this world is not our home. We are here on a journey. We're here on a mission to display the glories and the gospel of God. That as we live and as we do things, that people need to be able to see that there is something different about us. That our goal is to declare the excellencies of him who brought us out of darkness and into light. And we do that by being people who exhibit love and goodness in our actions all the time. Guys, we live in a culture, much like the culture of the New Testament, where our culture is constantly looking at Christianity and saying, you people are nuts. You're crazy. The things that you believe, they just don't fit at all anymore. What Peter is saying is he's saying that people are going to come to you. They're going to be saying these things to you. But your ultimate goal is to live a life that is so good, that is so loving, that when they see you loving on your neighborhood, when they see you loving uh, on kids who, who don't have families in our community, Ultimately, they can't even speak evil against you because the goodness in your life so far outweighs that that all they can do is glorify the God who brought you out of darkness and into lights. 
we're meant to go as a community. We talk a lot about that idea of circle of responsibility. I think I have it for you. Right there, A, is where our church is. And the circle is the area that we believe God has said we are responsible locally to see that every man, woman, and child inside of the circle has multiple opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the gospel. How do we do it? First, missional communities. God has blessed us with this idea of missional communities and blessed us with incredible people who are serving inside of them, who are loving in so many different areas, um, be it schools, Foster Boys Ranch, assisted living facilities, foster families, all these different things, military families, God has called us to. We're able to be a gospel expression because of the work of missional communities. If you're not in a missional community, we say it all the time, get plugged in. Your life won't be the same. Number two, get a hobby. Find people to do it with. If you like to play golf, find other people who are far from God that like to play golf and play golf with them. If you are into uh, painting, if you're into sewing, I don't don't know, whatever you're into, music, like find people who are passionate about the same thing, who don't know Jesus and do it with them as a way to be able to get to know them and speak the gospel into their lives. Uh, Thirdly, be a regular. I think this is really important. We jump around all the time, the places we eat, the places we get coffee, whatever. Uh, there's a guy who I saw even this week. I had a meeting in Chick-fil-A in Somerville. And I go in, and every time I go in Chick-fil-A in Somerville in the morning, he's always there. He's a pastor of a local church in Somerville. And he has created an opportunity where he knows every employee of that Chick-fil-A. And he knows all the people who regularly walk in and out of those doors. He considers it his office. He does his work there. But in doing what he does there... He has opportunities to speak the gospel in every single one of those lives because he's a regular. Be a regular. Next, get involved in your kid's life. Listen, if you have kids, kids are like the best way to help you be a missionary in the world. Like, get plugged in. Be a coach of their sports team. Get to know other parents that way. If they're in school, like, join the PTA. Get to know people that way so that you can be an expression for the gospel in those ways. Instant relationships that are gospel focus. So disciples go personally, locally. Lastly, disciples go globally. We saw it in the Great Commission. We were to make disciples of all nations. In Acts 1.8, literally the last thing that Jesus says before he ascends into heaven is, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus has just broken this down for us to say that we have to be disciples that go personally, locally, and globally to the ends of the earth. When I was in high school, my high school Sunday school teacher, uh, a great man of God, he, he um, realized that he'd been running from God's call to go globally his whole life. And so what he did is he took his family of six, his wife, four kids, picked them up, they received training and moved Uh, out into the far reaches of Siberia to be an expression of the gospel where there were no missionaries, evangelical missionaries, sharing the gospel. That's a huge deal. They sold everything that they had. It's taking seriously the call of Christ to go. I was able to take a group of teenagers there a few years back, and it was incredible just to see the work that God was doing through the faithfulness of people who took seriously Christ's call to go globally. 
the pastor of the church um, that they're working with was a guy who was the head of the Russian mob in a city of a million people. And who one day, through the witness of these faithful missionaries, was able to come to faith in Christ. He was able to be trained and now as a pastor of a local church. People once were afraid of this man. But God has completely revolutionized his life. God isn't going to call you to great sacrifice without doing his thing, without doing his work, if we're faithful to follow in obedience. So how do we respond to going globally? Because the truth is, we're not all called to go to Siberia. There's three different things. Number one, pray. Pray for the people who are called. Pray for the people that God has called overseas to share the gospel. And then secondly, in that prayer, pray for the people that God has called them to. Realizing that there are so many people around the world that have never even heard the name of Jesus. And that we can have an opportunity to pray for them. There's a great website, operationworld.org. I encourage you to check it out. Check it out every day. Every day, Operation World places a different people group up that you are able to specifically pray for. They give you details. How many, uh, how many percent of these people uh, know Jesus? How many of them have never heard the name of Jesus before? They give you specific things to pray for. It's a great opportunity for you to start praying for the nations that God has called us to go to. Um, secondly, pay. We may not all be called to go to Siberia, but if God has blessed you with the resources to help others that he has called go, and we need to be faithful to make that happen. You might be the person that writes the check so that somebody else can go and see that people who are far from God are able to develop a relationship with him. Lastly, go. Just go. I strongly believe that every person called by Christ needs to, at some point in their lives, take the opportunity to go globally. To see what the world is like. Guys, until you go outside of our existence, you have no idea what 97% of the world is like. We have a really skewed vision of that, living here in America. Take the opportunity to go if you can. It'll change your life. It'll change your perspective. You will never, ever be the same again. And, And Christ has called you to do this. We have a great opportunity coming up in May. Charlie and I are taking a group um, to Haiti to be able to even deeper develop a relationship between this country and a specific city in our church. And uh, this is a great opportunity for some of you guys to take that step and go for the first time. If you're interested in doing that, come and speak to one of us and we'd love to give you more information about that as, as an opportunity for you. Guys, we're, we're sent to go. We, we can't ignore it. I heard the statistics this weekend. World population just went over 7 billion people. 6.4 billion of those people don't have a relationship with Jesus. There are people in Siberia. There are people in China. There are people in England. There are people in the United States, in New York, in California. There are people in South Carolina. There are people who live on your streets. billion of them. And God has called us to go. We are called to have a burden for them. 
We've got to be faithful to step in. Listen. If you're serious about following Jesus, then you follow Jesus to where he went. If you're serious about following Jesus, you follow Jesus to those who are hopeless. To those who haven't experienced grace, who haven't experienced the love that he has to offer. God has called us to follow him. We follow him to go on mission. So that a world can see and understand who he is and how much he loves them. All that to say, we could never go if Christ never came to us. We have great hope in the fact that God loves us, that he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross to raise again from the grave so that we could be forgiven of our sins and enter into new life. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, know that first off this morning, Christ came to you. He came to you. He's asking you to step to him so that he can then send you. I'll be standing in the back in a few minutes and I love the opportunity um, to get to speak with you if you don't have a relationship with Christ and get the chance to pray with you as well. Guys, for the rest of us, let's take seriously what God has called us to do. Step in faithful obedience and following Christ to the nations. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your word thankful for the challenge that you've called us to, realizing God, that you didn't just say you hope that we'll go. You didn't say that you want us to go, but you've said that we will go. And so if we're serious about calling you Lord, if we're serious about saying that you are the one who has authority in heaven and earth and in our lives, we have no choice but to follow you in obedience. God, give us courage, give us strength, give us boldness to follow you in all the things we do. In Christ's name, amen.